The San Diego region is as busy as it is beautiful, so traffic shouldn't keep you from getting on your way. The innovative I-15 express lanes provide flexible travel between State Route 78 and 163 to relieve congestion and keep rush hour commute times reliable. If you drive solo, get Fast Track online or at Costco. It's easy. The toll is automatically deducted from your Fast Track account based on trip length and traffic. Visit 511SD.com slash express lanes and get on your way. Language, young man. <laughs> so angry. Golly. Pardon the language, folks. What's up, everybody? Welcome. What's up, John? Heather, good to see you. What's up, everybody? Welcome to the afternoon edition of Joshua T. Berglund's Morning Gratitude. Sorry, I'm getting text messages. I'm going to turn that away. Um, wow. So, like, I, I, I'm just like, hold on. I got to catch my breath for a second. Let me turn this off. All right. So, I kind of I shared when I was like, shared the video out. I said, don't miss this interview. And, and it because I meant it. Like, I don't like to bluff and I don't like to just say, hey, watch this. You should watch this episode. Like, I'm not that arrogant. But you really should watch this. I, I'm, I had a friend, Ahmed Kaba, that was one of my childhood friends, one of the best people I know, love him to death, reach out to me and said, hey, you need to connect with this person. I'm like, okay. He goes, you should hear her story. But that's all I said. So then I spoke to her. Uh, Crystal, sure, just message me. Um, really quick, dadgummit. Everyone listening right now on iHeartRadio, Spotify, Spreaker, Stitcher, Anchor, I think I said Google Play and iTunes, welcome to the show. You can join us over at Joshua T. Berglund's Morning Gratitude on Facebook, and you can join in the conversation. So back to what I was saying. You don't, like, when I spoke to our next guest, not only did it hit, like, me in, like, the stomach, the chest, the soul, the heart. It, it, it hit me. It, 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 it didn't surprise me the story I heard. However, to actually be talking to someone that experienced it did shock me. Um, this is this is going to you know what? I'm just going to shut up. I'm going to read you the bio because I, I, I'm not going to I can't even do an intro without this, because honestly, this the fact if you if you want to know that God is real, if you want to know that God can bring you out of any situation, listen to this interview. Chong Kim is an author, speaker, and entrepreneur. Miss Kim has recently 
launched her LLC as a consulting firm to assist small and large corporations in the fight against human trafficking. Chong has been an expert on the issue of human trafficking, child exploitation, domestic violence, and sexual assault. Chong's value proposition is extensive as she has been trained, dedicated over 500 plus volunteer hours in being a legal advocate in family law, domestic violence, and criminal law. She's also dedicated her time in street outreach and has received certificates and awards for her ongoing activism in the fight of human and civil rights. Chong Kim is also an overcomer of abuse and trafficking. Her story partially told in an independent film, Eden, which won seven awards for the best picture and best narrative can be accessed via YouTube, HBO, and Amazon Prime as a member. While she educates the public by speaking, she's also launched her own YouTube channel called Let's Talk with Chong. She gives personal insights regarding predator behaviors, giving tips to parents on how to effect effectively communicate with your child and having an open discussion that most parents and concerned concerned people have regarding the t issues of trafficking in America. Chong Kim also published a memoir, Broken, Broken Silence, is also available via Amazon through Kindle and paperback, Barnes and Noble via the Nook only, and you can also access her online store at squareup.com backslash store backslash broken silence CK. Currently, Miss Kim is pursuing her dream to launch a scripted TV series about human trafficking called Save Me, which is about a female survivor of human, human trafficking who works alongside the FBI to teach them how to think like a trafficker in order to rescue the victims in time. While Miss Kim continues to educate the public about the harms of exploitation and child trafficking, she does also enjoy her time writing poetry, singing, and traveling. You can learn more about Chong by going to facebook.com slash Chong Kim LLC. Wow. Ladies and gentlemen, the one, the only Chong Kim. Hi. We finally are doing this. Yes. <laughs> How are you today? I am great. I am great. <laughs> Good. Um, well, first things first, Chong, what are you grateful for today? I'm grateful that one, I am sober for over 18 years. Wow. I'm cocaine, meth, and crack cocaine. God. That's that's something to be grateful for. Um so let's uh <laughs> let's just get into this. Because okay. you've got quite the story. Um and everybody, again, listening on the radio audience, you can join us over at Facebook. So if you want to ask questions, uh, you, you know, you're more than welcome to. Uh, Lisa, good to see you. Tracy, Bonnie, welcome. Crystal, great to see you. John, Heather. Um, Chong, so from my understanding when we spoke, you didn't um, – you're not just passionate about this because you have a heart and soul, but you have a passion about fighting sex trafficking because you experienced it. Yes. As a child, correct? Not as a child. I was exploited through my babysitter, but I wasn't sold. I didn't go into the actual trafficking where I was bought and sold until I was 19. But I've had history of sexual abuse and where men have traded me 
to other men, even as a child. How did, okay, so can you, I, this is a, maybe a dumb question, but how does that even happen? House parties. When your parents are drinking and um, I grew up in church and I grew up, I don't want to say the denomination because I don't want to ridicule the denomination, but I do want to say that uh, my family upbringing, my father drank, he loved his alcohol, he loved his parties, and it was all about getting together, getting drunk, and the more drunk they became, the more the men felt like they had the ability to um, take me to a room or a bathroom and say, let me show you something, and it would be their genitalians. And I was also spiritually abused. I didn't realize this until I became an adult, where even some of the uh, clergymen would say to me that if you want to get to heaven, you have to perform oral sex. I kid you not. And that's also in my book, where I talk about um, the clergymen, the principal, the teachers. I was sexually abused. My first rape happened when I was three years old, and it continued till I was six. And then after that, between the ages of five and six, um, I went to a friend's house, and she lived right down the street, and her uncle also sexually abused me. And then um, even through elementary, I had a, a teacher that had molested me, and then I had a principal that sexually abused me, and also another principal that molested me. And this all happened in Oklahoma. I used to live in Dell City, Oklahoma. Okay, so um, that uh, uh, so that normally doesn't knock me out for a loss of words, but these are all people that you're supposed to be able to trust. Yep. So, okay, so, so this happens, all, all of that happens. And like, and then what, like, what did you, how, like as a child, like this is happening as a young child, like what, what, were you not screaming for help? Was there no help? Were you told to shut your mouth? What, what the, like, how does this happen and then keep happening? I grew up in an abusive home, and so I was constantly in fear of my own parents. So I never told them anything, and I never believed that anyone would believe me. I remember when I was little, I thought something was wrong with me. I actually got addicted to porn at a very young age. I remember in first grade, I brought a magazine of porn, and I was showing it to all the boys because I knew that they liked it more than the girls. I didn't even know any of the... um, sex toys that was in my aunt's room. And I remember taking them to school and no one at church or school ever said, where did you get this? Where are you learning this? Nothing was ever taught that way. Instead, I got spankings. I was expelled at school. I was um, kicked out. I was ridiculed as the defiant child. So the only way I could release whatever anger or frustration I went through. Um, I ended up being a bully when, as I got older. 
all the boys I liked, I ended up punching them because I thought that was love. I would go up to a boy and I said, I like you. And I punched him in the face and the teachers would grab me and said, what is wrong with you? But no one ever intervened. And plus I grew up in the early, early eighties. I'm trying to make myself look younger, <laughs> but I grew up in the early eighties where, you know, you were told you don't talk about this. Even when I shared with teachers, about some of the things that was going on at home, this is what the teacher said to me. Chong, you're Asian. And what I know about Asian people, they're quiet. And that's what you need to be. I kid you not. I kid you not. And then by the time I was 12 and 13, I ended up having to move out to Blanchard, Oklahoma, which is a small redneck town. And I kid you not, when I say redneck, we grew, I grew up in a trailer. <laughs> we had like 10 acres of land. We had cows, horses, so I used to consider myself the Asian redneck. Uh, you and Jimmy the Ninja, by the way. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> <laughs> he's, 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 he's called, he is the yellow, that, they call him, the, his nickname was the yellow redneck. So you have, <laughs> you have a brother in that, I come to find out. Unbelievable. Yes. and wow. um, But, you know, all through my life, even in high school, I was made fun of. I was called a chink, a gook. It was an all-Caucasian school. And so if I liked the boys, they're like, oh, my gosh, you're Asian. You're a chink. And so it made me susceptible for traffickers and pimps to approach me because no one else wanted me. So it was easier for this recruiter who I met in 1994 at a country club in Lawton, Oklahoma. And by then, I had moved to Dallas, Texas. I had my own apartment. And just to let everyone know, for us Okies, Dallas, Texas is not a separate state. That's Manhattan to us. So a yeah. lot of times, a lot of us Okies will be like, hey, we're going to Dallas. <laughs> That's the big city for sure. I, exactly. I'm an Okie too, so I know. <laughs> uh, well, so, so wait a second. So were you, so the, the sexual abuse, did it go on all through junior high and high school too? The high school were by students. But the elementary, from the time I was 12 and under, it went on at home with friends and family and people I trust. And then when I got into junior high and high school, there was a, um, there was a, I was in seventh grade and we were learning about sexuality. So it was a trigger for me. I was very frigid. I didn't know anything. So I didn't want to talk about it. So a school counselor consulted me and asked me what's wrong. So I told her I was sexually abused. What I did not realize is that she had shared with the students that I was sexually abused. So the boys in my school, they started to taunt me. And they would whisper behind my back while I was walking to my locker. They would touch, touch my bottom. They would grope me. And when I told the school counselor, all of a sudden there was rumors saying that I was claiming that I was raped in school. So I got bullied because of that, because I snitched in school. Oh, my gosh. And so they would say, oh, and they would make all these Asian stereotypes. At that time, I've never seen Full Metal Jacket. So I didn't know the saying, me love you long time. <laughs> so oh, all the kids would say, hey, Chong, can you say me love you long time in broken English? So I did, and everyone laughed. But I had no idea what that saying was about. And so... But, you know, when I went to the school, when I went to the teachers, you know, the teachers would do anything. They just told me to get over it. 
So how, how did you eventually end up getting sold? When in 1994, um, and in my book, it's more detailed, but I actually started out as a strip dancer. I became a strip dancer because I was angry with my dad that he paid more attention to the people in his church who were evil people and not paying attention to my pain. So I felt like in order to get his attention, I went to ruin his reputation. That was my payback. And so when I was a dancer in Lawton, Oklahoma, and then after a while, um, I let the uh, streets get the best of me. And so one of the dancers, she was older, and she said, you need to go back to school, get yourself together. And that's when I made the transition to move out to Dallas. I was actually studying law enforcement because I wanted to be a cop. But I would always come back to Lawton, Oklahoma, or Blanchard, Oklahoma, and hang out with my friends. I met this guy. He went by Keith, and he wore a Marine uniform. And he looked, I hate to say this, but he kind of looked like the new kids on the block <laughs> type of guy because he was really hot. <laughs> and I remember he walked in with his black dress uniform and a white hat, and he was leaned up against a bar. And I think the club was called City Limits. It's now in Cache, Oklahoma. I actually went there myself. And I had low self-esteem because I was called a chink, a gook. I thought no guy would ever like someone like me. And so all, the, all my girlfriends, they looked at him and they said, that guy is checking you out. And I remember I turned around and I am a sucker for dimples. <laughs> And so when he looked at me and he smiled, I thought maybe he was looking at the other girls. Maybe he was, she was in my direction or something. And so I look at the girls, they're walking towards the dance floor and I'm like, where is he? And I turn around, he's right behind me. And so of course we're in a country club and we can hardly hear each other. So he said, why don't we go outside and, and talk? So I said, okay. So I look at my girlfriends and I'm like, I'm going outside. And they're like, okay. And so I went outside, and he said all the right things to me. He asked me, what do you enjoy doing? And I said, I love to sing. He said, what do you like to sing on? I said, I love um, Eddie James, Billie Holiday. You know, I love classic songs. But we started singing together. It was kind of like those romantic Disney romance movies. And um, and I didn't know anything about dating. I didn't know anything about boundaries. And um, so next thing I knew, we were talking on the phone every night. We'd say, okay, one, two, three, you hang up. And then we're like, oh, you're still there, you know? And I remember feeling giddy and everything. But one of the things I didn't realize was a red flag during that time. I never knew where he lived. He never talked about himself. He never shared anything. And everything he agreed on was what I liked. So I thought this was a perfect relationship. He liked everything I liked. And so um, then one day he said, I want to take you to Florida to go meet my family. We had only dated for two weeks. We were already saying we love you. I was already writing his name, my name, our future kid's name <laughs> was his last name. And um, next thing I knew... Um, I remember on the way there, and I am geographically challenged, but if you think of Dallas, Texas, having to go 35, but then 
we're supposed to head to Florida, so we're not even supposed to jump on 35 North at all. But I didn't know that. The whole time I remember sitting in a passenger seat, I kept envisioning that we would live in this picket fence. He was going to be my, my Prince Charming. He was going to rescue me from all the abuse I went through. And I was willing to give up my dreams to be a cop, to be a singer, just to cater to him, just to love him. Because that's what I wanted so much, was someone to love me. Yeah. And um, we ended up in Enid, Oklahoma, in an abandoned house. And at first I thought, boy, Florida really looks ugly. Because <laughs> it was gray and dreary outside and... And I didn't see any palm trees on the beach. And I had no idea. I was actually in northern Oklahoma. And um, I saw the abandoned house. And I didn't want to sound like I was judging him. But I thought, okay, if his parents are living here, how is he taking care of them? You know? So I said, does your parents live here? And he said, no, I have a homeless friend I help. That's how naive I was. I was like, oh, my gosh, he's such a great guy. He cares about homeless people. And... um. But the one thing I will never forget is when he said, um, I said, I'll stay right here. We were still in the car. And I said, I'll stay right here. You go visit your friend and I'll just wait for you. He didn't say one word. He got out of the driver's seat, walked over to the passenger side, opened the car door and choked me. And he said, you will do what I say. And the only thing in my mind at that time and this is how victims actually believe. I actually thought it was my fault. I thought, what did I do wrong? Did I say something wrong? You know, that kept playing in my head. I had no idea what human trafficking was, especially in 1994. And so we walked into this abandoned house, and he immediately handcuffs my right hand into the doorknob. And at first I thought he was playing, I'm in total shock. I have no idea what's going on. This abandoned house does not have any plumbing. And so he had one of those briefcase type of cell phones, and he was talking on it. And he said, uh-huh, yeah, I got her. Uh-huh. I, I didn't pay attention at the time. It's like when you go through a crisis, you don't think about all the clues and red flags. Does that make sense? Yeah. You don't think about it until the aftermath other crisis when you're replaying that scenario and then you're like wait a minute that didn't make sense but it was already too late well in that moment all i could think about was why was he mad i want to make him happy again i want him to love me again i want him to smile like he used to that was playing in my head and while he was pulling my purse i had my naturalization paper because i was actually born in south korea and my uncle, who is in the U.S. military, he was the one who brought me and my family here. Because in Korea, they were going to discard me because I was disabled. And so my uncle, he said, well, you better tell them Koreans to step away from my little niece, or they're going to have a Texas boot up their butt. And so that's how I came to the United States. And so when you're not born here, you have to depend on INS to give you those papers. Well, he destroyed those papers. But I remember in 1984, I got to sh shake Ronald Reagan's hand. But I was only eight or nine years old. I didn't know anything about politics. I didn't know who he was. And I remember he said, welcome to America. You're now an American citizen. So when the recruiter destroyed my naturalization paper, 
I thought I was invincible. I shook Ronald Reagan's hand. So I thought, you know what? No biggie. I'll just call the White House up and say, yo, Reagan, remember me? Can you get me my papers back? That I, that's how literal I believed in the American system. And so little did I know that when the reality was hitting, I had been locked up in this house. Um, the first time I ran away was about a couple of weeks and I hadn't showered. I hadn't been able to use the bathroom, so I had to soil on myself. When he was beating me, there was blood, and it, I had the body odor and the metallic smell of the blood and things like that. And so when he took off the handcuffs, he said, if you scream or try to ask for help, no one is going to believe you. I didn't believe him. So I screamed. I said, help me. Someone help me. But to everyone else in a small suburban town in Enid, Oklahoma, I looked like the hobo. I looked like the crazy person. I hadn't showered in weeks. I looked disgusting. I smelled. And I remember going into the shopping center and I said, somebody help me. But my boyfriend is going to kill me. And he walks in in the military camo, grabs him by my hair and drags me out. Nobody intervenes. People are actually clapping. Because it's like he took out the trash. And then he threw me in the car. And he said, did you notice something? Nobody helped you. And I believed him. From that point on, I believed him. He said, you are a nobody. And that's what he said. So from that point on, I became compliant. Wherever I had to go, I went with him. And then I met with this lady. I didn't want to... There's more to it to the uh, in the book. But I actually met a lady that I thought was going to rescue me from him. I didn't realize it was a setup. She actually was a madam of an escort service in Oklahoma. And so she found me, and she was the one who in turn got me trafficked to Nevada. So that's how I got trafficked. And we were on an Indian reservation in northern Nevada on an abandoned warehouse distribution building where each girls and boys were placed in each different unit. Because I was American, I could not be clumped with other American girls because they would plot and scheme. So I ended up being with various different um, girls of different ethnic backgrounds, from girls from Moldova, Europe, Netherlands, Asia, Africa, India. So none of us could speak the same language. And those were the girls I was grouped in. But I was solicited as a 14-year-old Japanese girl even though I'm Korean. So is that warehouse still there? I don't know. I haven't been there in 1995. I mean, but this stuff obviously is still going on. You told me, you shared with me something. So you, you go to Vegas and you, you're there and then you're getting sex trafficked. At what point... How did you get from being the sexually exploited to becoming a madam? How did that transition happen? I remember there was a little girl named Mia. Well, I called her Mia. I don't know her name, but she was seven years old. When people see the movie Eden, they'll notice that Bo Bridges is handing, handing the girls kittens. It was a symbolism because when I went in, they would partner us, partner us up with little girls so this little girl she was about six or seven years old i didn't know her name i we didn't she didn't speak english 
but I would call her Mia. And so we would cuddle together. I would protect her. So if I did not comply, they would actually tie me to a chair and make me watch her get raped and sodomized. That was the, the punishment instead of punishing me. And so when that had happened, I got angry. And I remember when the traffickers would call us out to come out and I was clenching and I said, God, I hate you. And I remember I said, if I die, I don't want to be in heaven with you. I just want you to just leave my soul alone. I don't want to be anywhere near you. That's what they said. I said, leave my soul alone because I was so angry with God, you know. And um, next thing I knew, while we were waiting, they had like this lobby area where the trucks come in. And so each of the girls are lined up in a row. So the first row would get up and walk towards the first truck. And then they'd be hauled off some more. And then the next group of girls. So I was in, I was the last line. And so when one of the traffickers opened up the rolling doors, I remember feeling that wind. And when I felt the wind, I kid you not, and I'm not schizophrenic, <laughs> but I kid you not, I, to me, I felt like God was talking to me because I heard the whisper saying, everything will be okay. And I felt like I was three years old again. And I saw this blue butterfly and it landed on my finger. And I felt peace. Even, even that, that warm, peaceful feeling amongst all this darkness and this really, um, this really dark world. Does that make sense? Yeah. And, you know, and, and there are times I, I would look back and think, did God really talk to me? You know, I, I was like, I don't want to be a believer. I don't, you know, there's no such thing, you know. And, um, but at that moment, to me, I felt like when God said, everything will be okay. This is my comprehension. I felt like that God knew that I needed to rank up so that way I could get out. And I felt like that God was saying, I will, I have already forgiven you what you're about to do. You have to do what you have to do to get out. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. And one of the things that, you know, when I've been doing public speaking for 15 years and I had people say, well, why don't you just walk away? It's like, do you, would you ever dare to say that to a Jewish person at a concentration camp? You know, you can't go out to a trafficker and go, oh, by the way, now that you're done using me, I'm just going to walk over here and just say bye-bye, okay? It doesn't work that way, you know? And, um, and I remember the head trafficker, he would only come maybe like two or three times a month. But almost on the every day, we dealt with the, the, what they call the handlers. These were the men that had to take care of us. They were the ones that had to feed us, make sure we were in line. They would also bring in doctors to make sure we didn't have AIDS, STD, things like that. But we were not allowed to use condoms. So any of the buyers that bought us for paid rape, they get to use us without any condoms. And the reason why is they wanted us to be pregnant. Because when the girls get pregnant, then they would find a dirty doctor that may be behind on his child support, may have some gambling debt issues, and then they'll say, we'll make all that go away. We just need you to sign these documents saying you aborted these babies, but these babies aren't aborted. 
they just become undocumented infants. And then they get resold. And I into had baby someone, farms, right? Yes. They turn them into baby farms. And I had a friend of mine, he asked me, he said, well, they wait till they're of age and then they sex traffic them, right? And I said, no. And he's like, they sex traffic infants, infants, toddlers, because there is a demand for pedophilia. And that's what they cater to. So when I decided to rank up, I remember walking up to my trafficker, the head trafficker. And I said, are you having the men manning the phones? And he looked at me, he goes, what are you talking about? And I said, you need a woman to man the phones. And I kid you not, part of me was like, what are you doing? Why, why are you helping this guy? You know, I, I'm like, what is going on here? You know, and he's like, you don't know what you're talking about. And he had a European accent. All of the men had European accents. None of them sounded American. And so I told him, I said, I'm pretty, I'm young, and I can get you more girls. And I can help you get more money. And he said, ballpark figure, how much do you think I already made? And they said, probably about twenty to 60000 a day. And he looked at me and I said, but if you have a woman in the lead, I can double that or even triple that. And so he said, let's put you to a test. All I thought about was, I need to get out of here. But I was constantly followed. And so they would put like the potato sack over my head. They would put cloth over my head. So I never knew where we were going. So I went from Northern Nevada in an abandoned warehouse and I was brought into Las Vegas. So he said, you will be my concubine. And so he told me, he said, I want to know your loyalty. So you will prove it to me. If not, you go back into the warehouse. At that point, all I could think about, I never thought in a million years that I'd be where I'm at today. And so during that time, I thought, you know, I'm expendable. I'm going to go to hell anyways. Might as well do what they want me to do. And so I helped them uh, run drug cartels, arms cartels. I started learning who were the corruptors. And when I uh, became a madam, I started my own escort service called Seductive Secrets. And every man that would call, I started to recreate the, um, the feeds. So if you want to see any of my girls, and I considered them the million dollar girls. So the men would have to pay a minimum of 10,000 just to meet with them. That did not include intercourse. If they wanted more, they had to pay more. But that was just the service fee alone. That's how I doubled the trafficking uh, money-making. And he was impressed. And then from that point on, that's when he started connecting me with his contacts. So I got in contact with someone he knew in the IRS. I got in contact with people he knew in Social Security Department. I got in contact with people he knew that were in cyber crimes. And so knowing all of this, knowing what they know, from that point on, I was like, you know what? What's the use of going to the police? Because they're all in it. And that was my thought. I thought, you know what, forget it. I don't trust the government. I don't trust anybody anymore. So I might as well just join them in this world of hell. So I started 
joining in cocaine parties, uh, meth parties. Um, I don't know if you ever saw Wolf on Wall Street. Yeah. Okay. It's it's pretty much the Wolf on Wall Street. But instead of stockbrokers, you had politicians. You had attorneys, judges. You had, I mean, these are people that are supposed to protect my rights, your rights, children's rights, you know? And this was so disheartening and just very, it really brought me down. And I remember feeling very depressed. I wanted to commit suicide multiple times. And um, I, like I said, I never thought I would ever get out until I found out I was pregnant. That's what made me leave because I did not want that to happen to my baby. I felt like, you know, if I'm going to turn tricks or whatever, I want that on me. I don't want that on my baby. And so I remember my dad is a huge James Bond fan. He loved Sean Connery. And I remember watching as a kid with my dad, I remember they would go through the vents. And so I thought to myself, the only way I can get out of here, and I was actually in one of the casinos in Las Vegas, we were on a presidential suite. And so there was a maintenance guy that I became friends with. And so I'll admit, I seduced him. They didn't think I was in love with him and everything. You know, I'd speak broken English, you know. And I said, he hits me, he hugs me all the time. I need a good man. And he's like, okay. So I would ask him, how do I get out of here? And he said that certain penthouse in the casino had cameras. So he would actually tell, show me the blueprint of how to escape. And one of that was actually going through the vent. And so I went through the vent, through the laundry chute, to another room so I could leave. And I was in a lingerie dress with stiletto heels. So by the time I came outside, I remember this this older gentleman, he was in a BMW, and now BMW has triggered me, so now I don't want to own one. <laughs> I'd rather take a Lexus or something else, but <laughs> um, but I remember he looked at me, and I looked at him, and I was like, oh, you want to have a good time? And he was like, yeah. So I got in his car and said, let's go down the alley. So I took off my stiletto shoes, and I beat him over the head. And all I could see was red. My heart was palpitating. I was like, oh, I'm going to go to hell. I'm definitely going to go to hell now. He did not die because a year later he tried to prosecute me for beating him. And, um, but anyway, that's how I got away. And I remember I was outside the Las Vegas Strip and I was walking because I abandoned his car so that way I can hitch, hitchhike the rest of the way. I remember going into this convenience store and there was this young kid. And what's funny was I was actually 20, 21, and the kid was probably the same age as me, but because I knew so much more, I felt older. Does that make sense? Yeah. And um, I remember he walked in, he was like, what's up? You know, and I saw three of the traffickers looking for me. They were like driving around and then they parked into the uh, convenience store. And so I was looking through, there was, it was kind of like one of those, um, touristy type of convenience stores. <clears throat> so I went inside the clothes rack, pretending I was looking at clothes. And I remember one of the guys just passed me. But the whole time I kept saying, God, I know you and I haven't talked in a while, but if you could do me this one favor, can you make me invisible? 
just this moment. And I remember I kept saying, make me invisible, make me invisible, make me invisible. And then I would hear ding, ding, you know, which was the door. And then the convenience store guy, he goes, um, miss, he's like, they're gone, you're safe now. And I looked up and he said, are they your abusive boyfriend? So I just said, yeah. And so he said, he said, they're gone. So outside the convenience store, there was this payphone. And I opened up the payphone and I looked up an adoption agency and I ended up in Abilene, Texas, which is a Bible Belt town. And um, I placed my daughter for adoption. She is now 21. She attends Baylor University and she's studying to be an RN nurse. But during that time, one of the downfalls about the adoption agency is that once I placed my baby for adoption, there was no further resources for me. I was dealing with grief. I didn't know who to talk to. Certain denominations looked down on me because I placed a baby for adoption because I was seen as this unwed mom. And, um, and so I ended up relapsing back into prostitution. And after a while, you get tired of eating dry ramen noodles with Hot Pockets. So I passed by this church, and I remember smelling home-cooked meal. So I went to Salvation Army. I stole a dress that was $2.50. I ended up looking like an Asian version of the Golden Girls with the uh, shoulder pads and everything. And I remember going into this church, and uh, this lady said, are you here for Bible study? And I said, is that what the food? And she was like, yes, we have potluck on Wednesday night. So I was like, hallelujah, amen, I am here, praise God. <laughs> and I remember going in there, and I saw one of the uh, Christian guys. And my first thought was, ooh, he's cute. And um, and I was piling food on this plate, and everyone's looking at me like, who is she, do you know who she is? You know, and I was scarfing down food and everything. I was like, oh my God, this is so good, whoever made this. That, you know? That's like me with donuts at church. Yeah, yeah I get it. <laughs> And um, so that same Christian guy, um, when I walked out of the church, he he pulled up and he rolled down his window. He said, you want to ride? And I was like, oh, thank you. So I got in his car. And so I put the food in between my legs. And I was like, you have to pay me. And he was like, why do I need it? And I said, because I'm a prostitute. And I remember feeling the brakes on his car. And I thought, great, he's going to throw me out or he's going to rape me. Because usually those are the two that always happens to me. So he's like, I'm taking you back to church. And I was like, great, I'm going to get Bible thumped. And so we went back to the same church. And um, I remember his roommate, you can hear him all the way down the hall. And he said, you found a what? Do you have any idea what the church is going to say? And when I was listening, he said, I don't care what the church is going to say. He said, she, he said, I want to help her. In my mind, I'm like, he's gay. That's why he <laughs> That's what I thought. I was like, he's gay. He has to be gay. But they took me in. And the university that they went to, I don't want to say any names. When the university, which was a Christian university, when they found out that I was there, there was rumors saying that these guys are running a prostitution ring. What they did for me is they loved me. 
they doted on me. They didn't care where I came from. And if I made mistakes, I'd be like, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. And they're like, if I, if I spilt milk, and one of the guys goes, look, I spilt milk all the time. I'm always clumsy. It's okay. And I was like, oh. And if I broke a dish, one of the other guys goes, here, I'll help you break another dish. You know, I was like, oh, they're like, they're just dishes. It's okay. But the one thing they kept saying to me, they said that I was a child of God and that God loved me and I never heard of that. And I was like, who is this God you speak of? <laughs> no, where did he come from? Where was he when I was, you know, hurting? And, but they always told me that, you know, God loved me. And, um, but when I thought I was a burden to the guys, because the campus actually met with me and they said that if I did not leave, they were going to be expelled. So I ran away. But the one thing I remember they kept saying to me, and I remember I would call them, it would be MCI, you have a collect call from Chong Kim. And I remember they would say, come home. They always said, come home. And, and uh, during that time, I was still healing with myself. I didn't know that um, I was dealing with my own enslavement. I was angry. I counted myself as a lesbian. I was going through orgy parties, drug parties, everything. And um, but then when I met my son's father, and um, he was the one who actually really opened my eyes. And when we were dating, it was funny. When I first saw him, I was like, oh, my gosh, he is hot. I want to do him. I'll, I'll be honest. And so when he learned what I was doing, he told me he didn't want to talk to me. And I said, fine. And um, because I wasn't honest with him. And so a month later, I was in I was in Pennsylvania when I met my son's father. I ended up in Ohio when he called me 30 days later. And he was like, I need to talk to you. I don't know what it is, but I can't stop thinking about you. I, there's something about you that intrigues me. He's like, where are you? I'll come pick you up. And he's in Pittsburgh. So I said, um, I'm in Ohio. And he was like, why are you in, wait a minute, are you with a guy? And I was like, yeah. And he was like, you need to quit chasing idiots and start chasing your dreams. That's what he said. He was very blunt. And that's what made me respect him. So my bonehead, I wanted to surprise him. So I went on this 1-800 chat line. I met a guy over the phone. He came and got me in Ohio, brought me back to Pennsylvania, but he was going to take me to a abandoned trailer that had no electricity and no phone. But we ended up in a car accident, so I never reached to his place. I remember waking up in the hospital and I thought I was in heaven because everything was white. And I remember this Middle Eastern doctor, he leaned over and he was like, hello. He said, God is protecting you. And I was like, okay, I'm not in heaven. <laughs> I kid you not. And I saw Carlos, my son's father. And I remember he was sitting there. And he said, is she okay? And I was like, you came for me. He's like, what is wrong with you? And I was like, why are you yelling at me? And he was like, what did I say? If you want to leave Ohio, you call me. Who the hell is Billy? And I was like, oh. 
Oh my gosh. I kid you not. But the one thing that um, when we started dating, I remember taking off my clothes and he looked at me and he was like, what are you doing? And I said, well, don't you want me? And he said, yes, but I want you in here. Aww. I was so mad because <laughs> I thought that was a rejection. And he picked up my clothes and he told me, he, he told me to um, put my clothes back on. I was so angry. And then he said to me, have you ever told a man no? And I said, no. And he said, you should. You should say no more often. And I said, why? If they wanted, I should give it to them. He said, no, they should turn it. That's what he said. And he said, the difference between a man and a boy, a boy only wants what he wants. A man will think about you. Wow. So 28 years old. <laughs> so I want you to segue for the sake of time. I want you to segue from that point and then how you turned your life around and and then how you got into what you're doing now. We have 12 minutes. Okay. <laughs> so I'm going to let you start. I'll be right back. But keep okay. this talk. Okay. So um, my son father actually passed away. And after he passed, I was in turmoil. But then I found out I was pregnant with a son. And when I became a mom, that's when I decided I wanted to change my life. I wanted to protect my son. And I used to hate men. And I used to be angry and wanted to blame everything on men until I became a mother of a boy that is going to be a man. And I felt like the only way I could do that is to teach him how to be a man through me. And it had to start with me. I had to get clean. I became sober. And I reinvented my life. I started joining into counseling. I started volunteering so I could learn. And I was, you know, going from shelter to shelter with my baby. And I went through so much um, struggles but the one thing I never stopped doing was I never I never gave in to any narcotics addiction. I never gave into and when my son was about six months old, this was in actually year two thousand, this is when I began to start giving my life to God. It was year two thousand and I had been laid off from a legitimate job. And I hadn't been working in four months. I had no way to pay rent. I was living in Dallas, Texas, and then at that time, um, that's when I moved out to Minnesota. And um, when I moved out to Minnesota, I went into extensive therapy. I started learning about borderline personality disassociation. But I told my therapist at the time, I said, I want to learn to hold myself accountable. I don't want any diagnosis to give me an excuse to be mean to people to be hateful, and to be bitter and angry. And because right. I'm now a recovering addict, everything I do is holistic. I look up vitamins and herbs and things like that to help me heal. I have been medicated free of antidepressants for over 10 years. I've never been more happy in my life. I don't take any antidepressant to help me sleep. I do take melatonin because it's natural. But I also use a diffusion I use the essential oils. 
and things like that. I had to change my whole lifestyle. But when I became a mother, that's when my activism grew because I felt like the only way I could protect my son from these traffickers is that I need to speak up. I need to teach other parents. I need to get other people on board and have them be awake in what was going on right behind our backyard. And so I did public speaking for 15 years, but then I realized I can't be in 300 different countries. So I figured, why not write a film that can reach 300 countries? It could be on Hulu, Netflix. So I, I actually started writing in 2012, and I've written up to eight seasons. And it's a crime procedural show with a faith component. And when I first pitched it to Trinity Channel, they said they didn't want it. It was talking about prostitution. They had, I had F-bombs in the uh, dialogue. And I said, this is how kids are talking on social media. So I wanted it to be very realistic because parents do not realize what their kids are doing when they're texting, when they're chatting, when they're sending Snapchats. And so I wanted to, I felt in my heart that God gave me this so I can educate the world through storytelling and visual arts about what's going on with human trafficking. We are learning about criminal profiling through films. We are learning about rape and stalking through films. We are learning about domestic violence. We are learning about GLBT. We are learning about AIDS and STDs. We're learning so much through film and art and music. Why not human trafficking? So that is what I plan to do. Wow. Chong, I am... Um... I, I, I don't know what to say other than the fact that you are proof that God can turn anyone's life around. And I, 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 very, very rarely am I at a loss for words. And, and now it's kind of one of them. I just can't find it other than to say it's a miracle. And your story is one that would give so many hope that, that if they're going through that or experienced it and they're dealing with anger to know that there's a way out, to know that there's hope, to know that yes, you can get well. Um, and I know that you didn't even go into really the darkest parts of what had happened, but it's probably, I don't know if the audience could handle it. Um, but I, I just want you to know that I, I thank God for you and for people like you, because it's people like you that will change the world and and shine light in this very very dark sick uh part of society that most people don't want to talk about or they're afraid to or or they think that there's no hope or they want to ignore it like it doesn't exist well guess what it exists yep it exists very very much and and there's and it's it's sad because it's happening at the government level pro athletes your your high powered um you know, extremely wealthy are involved in this and, and it's, it's a problem. And that's why these, these sex trafficking organizations need to start working together and utilize their resources because the monster they are fighting is not a small one. Nope. It is not. 
It's a global problem that we all need to work together to be able to stop because it is not right what's happening. And you are somebody that is, um, is, is in the trenches fighting. So I just want to say thank you. Um, I'm so grateful that you came on the show today, Chong. I, a blessing. And so I want I, um, to um, let everyone know when we do start the film, 30% will go back to charities that are actually doing outreach work. That's my giveaway. That's what I want to do. I don't want to just write one fat check. I want this to be a continuum every month. So every month I want to contribute to a nonprofit and yeah. help them get housing and help them get what they need. And so that's, that's one of the big reasons why I want to do this film. Wow. Well, Chong, uh, Thank you again. Thank you for being a friend. And um, I I look forward to talking to you again, okay? Absolutely. All right. God bless you. God bless you, too. Bye. Bye. (sighs) Wow. It's funny, but the only thing I can keep saying to myself is God is good. I mean, just I think about all the people in this world that have gone through suffering and pain and abuse and 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 then to know that there's some people that turn their life around because they make that choice. And it's it's inspiring. It's empowering. Wow. All right, guys. Um, thank you guys so much for listening. iHeartRadio, Spotify, Spreaker, Stitcher, Google Play, iTunes. God bless you guys. Thank you so much, everybody on Facebook. Um, Bonnie, don't be sad for for her. Be inspired that she turned her life around, that she made that decision. Don't. I, I know that you're dealing with a lot right now, Bonnie. But I, you, if anything, be inspired. And for someone like you that's struggling right now, hopefully that offers you hope. We have an awesome God. Take care, guys. The San Diego region is as busy as it is beautiful, so traffic shouldn't keep you from getting on your way. The innovative I-15 express lanes provide flexible travel between State Route 78 and 163 to relieve congestion and keep rush hour commute times reliable. If you drive solo, get Fast Track online or at Costco. It's easy. The toll is automatically deducted from your Fast Track account based on trip length and traffic. Visit 511SD.com slash express lanes and get on your way. 